that was my initiation. Leaving Florida, running a business, a multi-million dollar business with 52 employees, to then taking the small church, ending up on welfare, and it was welcome to ministry. And I realized right then and there that God calls you for a divine purpose. And if we would just focus and if we would just trust Him, He will lead us through. From Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, this is the Level Paths Podcast. My name is Chris Weigel, and we're glad you've taken some time to join us. What is the difference between Florida and Kentucky? The answer is absolutely everything. <laughs> there really is practically nothing similar between the two. So would it make sense for a young Floridian to move to the heart of Appalachia to serve as the pastor of a local church in Ashland, Kentucky? You and I might say, no, that makes no sense. But when a guy like Desmond Barrett is called by God to pack up and move from Florida to eastern Kentucky, he listens. On this episode of the Level Paths podcast, Dr. Desmond Barrett. Desmond is the lead pastor at Summit Church of the Nazarene in Ashland, Kentucky. The story of how God led him to Ashland is fascinating. Rex Howe and Matt Shamlin from Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute are having a conversation with Desmond about his ministry, his writing, and the uniqueness of pastoring in Appalachia. Here's Matt Shamlin. Desmond, it is so great to be a part of this podcast with you today. Uh, would you just take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself as we get started? Well, thank you so much. It's truly an honor to be on the podcast today and to talk about everything in Appalachia, because that's where my heart is. That's where I'm planted. That's where I believe that uh, God has called me to. I am a Nazarene pastor, and so I serve at Summit Nazarene in Ashland, Kentucky. I wasn't always a pastor, and that wasn't uh, where I came from, but God has truly called me to this place and in this season of my life, and I'm proud to call myself a member of the Appalachian clan, and truly, it is a clan mentality, and if they let you in, it's like the mafia, you're in for life. But it, it takes a, a lot of initiation that the good people of the church put you through as a pastor, but I'm fortunate. I was raised in uh, Southwest Florida. And so when I entered ministry 10 years ago, full time, and I go to a small rural church of eight people in Southwest Virginia, and that was truly my initiation into Appalachia. And I remember we didn't have garbage service at the end of the driveway, which I thought was so bizarre for, you know, somebody who came from Southwest Florida. I remember getting directions and they said, go to this house and take a left and, you know, buy the dog and the cow. And I mean, it was just so bizarre. Here I am, and I want you to picture this in your mind's eye, that I'm in shorts, I'm in flip-flops, I throw out my trash, and I step in something, obviously, while I'm there, and I'm driving back through these cornfields, and I just smell something reeking, and I roll down my windows, and of course, the flies come in, and by the time I'm having a nervous breakdown, this is my initiation to this culture, and I get out of my car, and I'm taking my flip-flops, and I'm wiping them on the side of the road, and my grandmother calls, and she says, son, what are you doing? doing? And I said, I'm in a freaking cornfield and I don't know how to get out and I smell and what am I doing in ministry? And that was my initiation of leaving Florida, of running a business, a multi-million dollar business with 52 employees to then taking the small church, ending up on welfare. And it was welcome to ministry. 
And I realized right then and there that God calls you for a divine purpose. And if we would just focus and if we would just trust him, he will lead us through. Now, all these years later, I show up in Ashland, Kentucky, and God continues to bless. God continues to teach me new things. And the one thing that I have taken throughout this whole process is that if I keep on saying yes, God will provide. And every time I've said no, and every time I've tried to do it Desmond's way, that's when I've got myself in trouble. Talk to us about your educational journey a little bit. You were a businessman and then somehow ended up in ministry. What was the educational path that helped you make that transition? After high school, I had a full-ride scholarship to our local community college. And I was so successful that after a year and a half, they asked me not to come back. And I flunked out of a community college and it was a rude awakening. At the same time, I was getting married and I was starting to have children and I was in public office in my hometown. And here I was as this 22, 23 year old kid who was having a family and settling down roots and trying to make it and try to piece things together. God was the furthest thing from my mind. And in the first six months of my marriage, I got to a point that I wanted to be successful and I didn't think the family that God God had called me to and had created for me was going to help me get there. Again, my mind was warped. I didn't have a spirituality. I believe there was a God, but didn't know him as a personal savior. And it was my wife who said, let's go to the church of the Nazarene. This is where my roots are. Let's get grounded. Well, I had a little bit of a Catholic background, so I was baptized in the Catholic Church, and I said, no, 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 we need to go see a priest. Mind you, I had not seen a priest in at least a decade, but that was my mindset, that that's my church, even though I don't go to the church. And so, I go to the church, and I just feel like there is this God that I can have a relationship with, and he begins to speak to my heart, and he begins to speak to my mind. And I remember I was outside of Miami at the time, and I was at a prayer conference, and God said, if you're going to move, it's now. And I remember going to the altar at that prayer conference and truly surrendering my life over to him. Because up to that point, those few years that I was in the church, I was playing church. I dressed up on Sunday and I looked successful on the outside, but in the inside, I was dying spiritually. And that day I fully surrendered my life to Christ. And that's when God said, but there's more. And the more was that I needed to enter ministry. Well, that wasn't Desmond's plan. Desmond's plan was to be in the state legislature. I thought, okay, at the age of you know 22, I get elected to public office. I stay in it a little bit. Maybe I run at the county level. And then I run for the state legislature. And every time I tried to make that next move, God would put a roadblock in there. And finally, again, I had to come to that place where I had to die to self to lift up the Savior who was calling me into ministry. And I remember going to my mentor pastor and I said, you know, pastor, I'm getting called into ministry. He said, absolutely not. No, you're not. I I see you. Again, it was the carnal Desmond was being seen by people on the outside. And he said, if you are truly called, you have to spend one year every week visiting with me for at least three hours a week. And you have to commit to a year. And if after that year, I believe you're called, you will sell everything and move to Nazarene Baba College, which at the time was in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I said, sure, yeah, that's what I'll do. Well, uh, God worked again in a spiritual way. Over the next three and a half years, God really got a hold of my heart. And I went through Nazarene Baba College and I graduated with a bachelor's of ministry. And I took my first church. And I remember my mentor pastor saying, your giftings are too good for that small church. Don't take it. Don't take it. Well, you know, I got to be honest with you. When God calls, you have to obey. Because if I had obeyed man, 
I don't know if I'd even be in ministry today, but I was willing to go to that eight-person church. I was willing to go to that next 50-person church and to live inside that church. And I'm willing you know, to go to Louisville and take an urban church now here in Ashland. In every season of my life, God is blessed. God is encouraged. And I've been so thankful that I've had a wife that has been willing to sacrifice throughout that process. And at times I felt like I sacrificed my kids to do ministry. And now I'm learning that we can't sacrifice our families. That's our first mission field. That's where we're called. A side note, if I never went to Virginia, I would have never adopted my son, who is now going to be six years old in a couple of weeks, and who I love and adore. And so, again, I believe it's part of God's plan if we're willing to fully surrender over to him. Since that time, I got a master's degree, a doctorate degree. So, it took me 10 years from flunking out of school to entering college again, and then another 10 years to get a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate. So, once God gets a hold of you, boom, he can radically change your life. You know, Desmond, as I listen to you talk, there's a lot of pastors out there who are discouraged, who listen to this podcast, listen to your podcast, the Rural Revitalization Network podcast, and are looking for that key, that piece that's going to help them move to the next day. They're no longer thinking about the next level. They're just trying to think about the next day. And when I listen to your story, there's some pieces of that story that I want to make sure that you talk about. You talk about being in the rural place in Virginia. You mentioned living in the church. You've pastored in difficult places. Even where you pastor now, you saw a downturn. God's blessing there incredibly now, and I'm so grateful for that. But could you talk about those, what I'm going to call seasons of discouragement, maybe those times in the desert? Could you talk about that, what God was doing in that, through that, to get you to write in Outreach Magazine, Revitalizer Magazine, writing a book, those types of things. Can you talk about how those discouraging times were so formative in getting you where you are today? I think you've hit on on my passion because I've been there. I've been at the church where I stood at the door and I thought, God, is this it? And I've been at the church where they didn't have a parsonage, so they put us in old Sunday school classrooms. And You know, I remember that first winter, again, I was a Florida boy, and so it was my first winter at this church in Pulaski, Virginia, a town of 9,000 people, and I'm living in old Sunday school classrooms that was connected to a youth wing, and we were cold. I mean, we literally were freezing. It was cinder block walls. There was no insulation, and here I was with my family. We were all wrapped up, and again, that was where I said, God, is this it? Is this all that you want for me? And even when I was in the urban context of Louisville and my daughter was battling depression and she wanted to take her life and we were planning as a husband and wife, we were saying, you know, if she takes her life in the parsonage, what are we going to do? And now even here in Summit, when I came here, you know, people said, oh yeah, let's change. We want to change. We want to change. And then you begin to make the change and people begin to leave and they begin to leave you nasty notes, anonymous notes, and they just stop. And you wonder, is this it, God? And what I have found throughout this, the seasons of my life, because they've been seasons, that if you just trust him, he's going to see you through. And I know when you look at it from the flesh side, you're going to get depressed and you're going to want to give up and you're going to want to be angry. But when you look at it in the faith side, what is God doing? He is still taking down 
all of your desires and all of your wants for his desires and for his wants. And I remember I, I was in this in Plasky, Virginia, and I invited up this guy, Roger, and he was a single guy, hadn't been married in over 25 years, and he wanted a cup of coffee. And so I asked Roger, I peeped my head out of the one Sunday school classroom that we called our master bedroom. I said, Roger, can you just go downstairs for a moment so I can change? And he says, well, pastor, I'm having a cup of coffee. Your wife invited me up. And I said, yes, Roger, I know, you know, but I need to get changed. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 25 minutes, 30 minutes go by, pop my head out again. Roger, are you almost, oh, I'm getting a second cup of coffee. And I, I screamed, I lost my mind. And I said, Roger, get out of my house. And what happened there? is that I didn't know how to love my people and my people didn't know how to love their pastor. And we had to work through it. And many of us are leaving frustrated and hurt and angry. And we think the greener pastures at the new church or the new call is going to help us. When God is saying, if you will just trust me in this season that you're in, and yes, it may be terrible, I will help you through. Now, Roger became a great friend of ours, and I had the opportunity to do his funeral. He died way too soon out working in his garden. But it taught me again, if we just love people where they are and we trust where God has planted us, God will do a new work in our lives, but also in the lives of our church. Oh, brother, you're speaking to my heart right now. When I was uh, pastoring in Illinois, and I first got there, you know, I'd moved from Dallas, Texas, urban setting, mega church capital of America, coming to a little rural Lisbon, Illinois with 300 people and parsonage and all that, you know, in my head was, I got this vision. I'm going to plow ahead. I'm going to lead the way people are going to follow the lay leadership there over and over again, said to me in my first three years, look, we just want you to love the people and teach God's word. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm on board. But it took three years, Desmond, until mm-hmm. that clicked. And I said, you know, they just really want me to love them and teach the word. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, vision will come as we follow God's word. I was looking at your church website, actually. I found the vision and mission page. And I'm like, yes. All they did was take the Great Commission and say, this is our vision and mission. And uh, I love to hear your heart about what a pastor needs to do is love the flock, get to know the flock and live in the flock and lead the flock in the truth. That's what I hear you saying. Desmond, could you talk about just for a moment, loving the people where they are and not loving the people where you want them to be? It is so easy not to love them where they are, not because you want to see them stay there, but because you love the vision where you want them to be more than loving the people where they are. Could you expand on that a little bit more? When you walk into a church for the very first time for that interview, and maybe you're going to preach the best sermon of your life, you're already dreaming about what these people can be, and you're not looking at where they are today, and you're not hearing their heart because your heart, your mind is so excited about the possibilities that you don't see the marriage that's crumbling. You don't see the family that is broken. You don't see the addiction that is being hid inside the congregation You know, with our smiles on Sundays. And we get a facade that first week, that second week, that first month, 
And when this honeymoon period begins to, to unwind and the masks begin to be taken off, we get discouraged as pastors. And this is when we begin to dream about the congregation we don't have. And we begin to look at the congregation next door. Or we begin to put out feelers in our resume and saying, hey, we got to get out of here. When God is saying, work in the hard places, because when you show up and God gives you the right tools for the right season to do the right work for him. But you have to be willing to surrender your life in those hard places. Now, when we do that, you have to do a couple of things. You have to listen. And when I say listen, don't be thinking of the next question or the, or the next response. Truly listen to what that person or persons are saying, because they know about this congregation a lot more than you will ever know. But if you listen intently to multiple people, you'll begin to put the puzzle pieces together of what the picture of what God had, what God has, and what God wants to do in the future. The second thing is, is you got to lean into these conversations. You have to be a person who not only listens, but leans in and intently pays attention because they're going to say some things when their guard is down that you're going to need to file in the back of your mind that's going to help you when you get ready for a move of the spirit inside, or you're going to try to move a pew into chairs, whatever it is, you're going to need to know some of this. And then the third thing is, is you have to be willing to, to live. And what I mean by that is you have to live with your people and not again, try to create in them the image you have, but the image that God has that takes patience, it takes tolerance. It takes a trust that God has you in this right place. Again, think about it from a gardening standpoint. When you're out there trying to till the garden to prepare for the season, you're going to get some rocks. You're going to get some weeds. You're going to get some pushback from the ground. But the more you, you tend to it, the more you love it, the more you nurture it, you are beginning to prepare the soil for what is to come. Now, I, I got to be honest with you. I hate the pruning stage. I hate the stage where we come in and people love you. Six months later, you begin to change things and they begin, that's not what we wanted. We don't believe you're spiritually feeding us anymore. Oh, Lord Jesus, take me now. I mean, that's that's the day. It's like, let's just do my eulogy, put me in the coffin and, and, and call it a day. But God is saying, if you continue to tend those fields, if you continue to nurture those fields, he'll bring in the right people at the right time. I'm in the process of right now uh, beginning to formulate a new book in my head called Addition Through Subtraction, Revitalizing the Established Church. And it's all about this idea of tearing it down, meaning allowing God to prune spiritually prune to prepare for the growth that's going to come. Many times we want growth to happen overnight, but the trouble did not happen overnight. The decline did not happen overnight. And it will take, as Mark Clifton says, tactical patience to continue to work that field. And when it happens, when it happens, then you will show up on Preacher's Magazine and Outreach Magazine as this church growth. And people will come to you and say, how'd you do it? And you're going to go back to them and say, I listened, I leaned, and I lived, and I loved my people. It's incredible to think about. Years ago, I went to a church that had suffered a massive split. And in a very short time, we became one of the top baptizing churches in our state. And so I was invited to be a part of all of the preaching, teaching circuits. Everybody wanted to know how you do it. That's what we do in church life. You know, when somebody's mm -hmm. successful, let's put it in a box and let's sell it, you know. And so I went 
to a conference to speak. And I remember how unfulfilling it was as people were listening to me, because what did we do? We prayed, we loved the folks, we taught the word and God worked. There was no magic. It was the work of God. It was the move of God. Everyone wanted something more. They wanted the techniques. They wanted the church growth things, you know, and there wasn't any of that. It was just pray, teach, love people and God worked. So let's talk a little bit about your writing, because I think this is an encouraging story, too. You write often for Outreach Magazine. You write often for Church Revitalizer. Tom Chaney is going to be our keynote speaker coming to our conference in September. And you wrote a book. Could you just give us a snippet on how did you start doing that? Because I think this is an encouraging story, too. So I'm not a writer, and I didn't even learn how to read until I was in the third, fourth, and fifth grade. And so I missed a window. I flunked the second grade because I couldn't read. And so I'm not a writer in that aspect. But I just believe that when God instills inside of you a passion, a calling on your life, if you just work at it, it's the same thing with the local church. If you just work at it, over time, you're going to get better and better and better and better. And so when I applied for the doctoral program at Trevecca Nazarene University. I'll be honest with you, the year before I threw away the application once I filled it out because they said you had to write in a matter and they set a time you had to write a five page paper. And I think it was like a 30 or 45 minute time frame and they would give you the topic. So there was no preparing. And I thought, well, I'm not ready for this. But God kept on saying to me, there is a dream inside of you that I've placed inside of you. And it was just a small, still voice, not an audible voice, but I just knew this is what I had to do. So I wrote my doctoral dissertation on revitalizing the declining church within the Church of the Nazarene, and it studied 10 churches, which is turned into a book called Revitalizing the Declining Church from Death's Door to Community Growth. You can find it on Amazon. But in, in all reality is this, is that I just continued to work at it, and I did the book, and I said, oh, you know, nobody's going to buy this and, and nobody's going to read it. And then my denominational officials endorsed it and said, OK, this is a good resource. And actually, just last week, I spoke to a denominational official in the Church of the Nazarene, and he said to me, what is the key? And I said, the key was prayer. If you want to revitalize a church, it's prayer. It's a commitment to surrendering it all to God. And he said, no, 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 there has to be a program. And I said, if you're looking for a silver bullet, there's a book that's out there that's that's very similar to that. Hey, get that. That's not going to be what God's going to endorse. What God endorses is the men and women who struggle and work year after year and labor unnoticed by denominational officials, unnoticed maybe even by local community members, but are doing the will of God. And then with the Revitalizer magazine with Tom Chaney, it literally was, I just contacted him. And we forget to do that just to say, hey, can I write? And he interviewed me. And if you ever met Tom Chaney, you're in and out in less than five minutes. And if you can't say it, you're done. He'll hang up on you, right? And I said, wow, okay. Well, then they want 1,200 words. And I'm like, I can't put 1,200 words in an article. And it, again, it's working those muscles. And then outreach magazines, they want 600 to 800 words. And they like it snippy and fast and four points and three points. And so you, it's a different writing style. And you adapt to that culture. Again, let me take it back to the local church. Every assignment that you have, you have to adapt 
to the culture that you're entering. Yes, you may be in central Appalachia and you may be going from one Baptist church or one Nazarene church to another, but at the end of the day, it's a new community. It's a new neighborhood. It's new families. And God wants to do a new work if you will trust him in it. Well, just so you know, Desmond, while we're on this podcast, I've already ordered Revitalizing the Declining Church. So I have done my part to help send your son to Rose Hill Christian School. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. (laughs) In all reality, it is a resources for pastors to read it. The average pastor, the bivocational pastor, it's a short read. It doesn't have Hebrew and Greek. It speaks the regular Joe language because I wanted to reach people who may not have the opportunity to go off to college or to seminary but they need hope. They need encouragement and they need to see it. And then at the end of every chapter, there are five revitalization rewards. And it just says, these are the five things that this local church did. The one thing you'll see throughout the whole book, it's prayer, prayer, prayer. Without prayer, there will be no movement of God. Well, there's no question where Desmond stands on the issue of prayer. When God moves and works in a ministry, you can always guarantee that someone or some group of people are regular and effectual in their prayer habits. Rex Howe and Matt Shamlin continue in a moment with Desmond Barrett and dive into the details behind prayer and its impact on church revitalization. Coming up on September 23rd at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio, the Appalachian Ministry Conference, fulfilling your ministry in a post-COVID Appalachia. The keynote speaker is Dr. Tom Cheney, author of Church Revitalization in Rural America. This first ever Appalachian Ministry Conference will focus on engaging Christian ministry in Appalachia for God's glory in a world impacted by COVID-19. The day starts at 9 a.m. and includes breakout sessions, lunch, Q&A sessions, Appalachian storytelling, and of course you'll hear from keynote speaker Dr. Tom Cheney, Rex Howell from Tri-State Bible College, and Matt Shamlin from the Appalachian Ministry Institute. Again, the Appalachian Ministry Conference is Thursday, September 23rd at Tri-State Bible College in South Point, Ohio. To register, visit tsbc.edu and click on Apply Now or call 740-377-2520. Here's Rex Howe and more with Desmond Barrett on this episode of the Level Paths Podcast. Let me ask some questions about the prayer because when I was in Dallas in a dying church, we had a pastoral transition and the pastor who came in, Dr. Jeff Van Gotham, his 30-year pastoral experience was revitalizing historic churches through prayer, the scriptures, and evangelism. When he came in, we did not have a prayer meeting. I think prayer meetings are like a fossil in the churches of today. Now, in Appalachia, we still have three services a week oftentimes, so maybe you have the remnants of prayer meetings, but young people aren't attending them. And so, he instituted a prayer meeting Growing up in Appalachia, prayer meetings were haphazard. There was no plan. It was just, we come together, hopefully someone prays, someone will give a testimony and wave a hanky in the air, and we'll sing some hymns from the hymn book. But he had movements of prayer, movements from adoration, movements into confession, movements into worship, and then movements into asking and supplication. I had never seen anything like it. 
And it, it looked a lot like if you've ever been to Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City, which if you haven't, you need to go. The earth shakes at the Tuesday night prayer meeting at Brooklyn Tabernacle. But anyway, we talk about prayer and I'm with you. It's essential if there's going to be revitalization, if there's going to be revival, it's going to come through prayer. But it's not trendy, Desmond. It's just like you discovered. What's the program? You know, what's the key? Well, prayer. Well, it's got to be something else. In Appalachia, if we can contextualize the prayer meeting even to that, how do we begin a movement of prayer? How have you begun a movement of prayer in an Appalachian setting? Well, I realized that it can't be me. If I'm the driver of it, it's going to fail. And so here in my local context, it's a layperson that meets every Wednesday and he calls the prayer meeting together and he's praying for specific individuals. He's praying over rooms. He's praying for services that will be had in the future. He's praying for our worship. He's praying for the lost and hurting and dying. And I got to be honest with you. I wish it was 100 people. I wish it was 50 people. I wish it was 20 people. I wish it was 10 people. But on average, He's having five, six people. Sometimes it's just him and his spouse, his wife. And I've said to him, and I'll say to your listeners, don't give up. God hears the prayer of the one. God hears the prayer of the, the one who is crying out in their despair, saying, God, make a move, a fresh move, a mighty move of God here in our community and here in our local church. Many times we want to give up because the numbers don't support what we're doing. But when it comes to prayer, when it's you and God, that's a mighty army. When you add a third person or a fourth person, oh, you're building a heavenly army that's getting ready to storm the gates of hell. But many churches, many pastors, many denominational leaders have given up because you're looking for the quick fix. Throughout scripture, I never saw where God said it would be easy. I never saw that he would just give you only certain tools, but call you to a different battle. No, he equipped you for the season that you're in. And it's the same thing with prayer. And so I've said to my local guy, Doug, don't give up. Even if it's you, even if it's your spouse, because see, I can't show up for everything. As the pastor, we can't be there for everything. And so we have to give support to our lay people and say, go ahead and lead, lead well. And there has to be accountability to that. But at the end of the day, he's leading this movement. And I believe that God is doing a new work. I've seen it. And when a someone from our worship team gets mad and they storm out because they think it's about them instead of Jesus, I don't chase after them. I pray and say, Lord, bless them in their new place. May you get a hold of their heart. But Lord, send us a new one. Mm-hmm. And that's the attitude. It's an attitude, again, relying on God that he's going to lead. You don't need a program, you need a prayer. And if you have a prayer life that's committed to God, over time, you're gonna see something special happen in your local church. All right, brother, Matt and I wrote this question down and I've gotta ask it, why are you so positive? (laughs) So growing up in Appalachia, my grandma, she would often use this phrase, I'm about to die. You talked to her about the weather, you talked to her about you know, the news and, and it would always come back around to while well, I'm about to die. And there was this doom and gloom that kind of rested over her Baptist experience as an Appalachian woman. And I remember one time I was, it'd been really hot in our area, not much rain. And I said, grandma, you need me to come over and cut the grass. And she said, oh, honey, there's no need grass is dead. And I was just like, grandma, everything's dying. Gloom, doom, melancholy. 
And that's part of Appalachia, I think. Not in total, but there is a, uh, a pessimism sometimes that resides here, a gloom and doom, a melancholic spirit. And some of that can be helpful. It can bring in a dose of realism to life. But we also need encouraged. We do need positivity. So why are you so positive? Well, I, I, I'm positive because only I can give away my joy. And we can give it away in our attitude and we can give it away in our disappointment. And I've just decided I'm going to be a joy-filled person and I'm not going to let anybody steal my joy. And it really goes back to my childhood. I was born in Louisville, Kentucky to a prostitute mother and a drug addict father who was selling crack cocaine on the streets of Fort Myers, Florida. And he used the name, the alias Desmond. That was his alias. And that was the name that they gave me, my family gave me. Now, think about that for a moment. That is a name that has all these bad connotations, right? He's selling drugs with this name, but God wanted to turn it for its good. And when my parents abandoned me and my two brothers, when I was nine months old, my brothers were two and three and didn't come back until I was eight years old, didn't call, didn't do anything until I was eight years old, didn't meet my parents till I was 11, met them again at 21 years old. I realized at that age, it was 21 years old, that only I can control the way I look at the world. Because before then, I was the, oh, woe is me. I was the Eeyore. And I've decided to be the Tigger. I've decided to be the guy who bounces around, who keeps a smile, that even if it's raining, I just say, get us some soap. Let's wash up. The Lord wants us to be clean. I just came back from vacation, and, and a lot of things were happening here in the church. And I listened for 29 minutes and 36 seconds. But who was counting? As a board member and my administrative assistant were unloading on everything. And at the end of the day, I just said, has it been handled? And they said, well, this, this, and this. And I said, okay, well, you're not mad. No, because at the end of the day, you're not going to steal my joy. And as pastors, we are allowing our people, we're allowing our circumstances to dictate the feelings that are inside of us. When God has placed joy, God has placed the word inside of us. And it's not to damn everybody to hell. It's not to say, oh, woe is me. It is to hold people accountable, but it is also to share the good news. It didn't say the bad news. It said the good news of Jesus Christ. And we are to go and make Christ-like disciples. Well, nobody wants to be around somebody who's an Eeyore all the time. They're going to go away from you instead of going and following with you. And if we are going to be the disciple makers that Christ has called us to be, then we have to be joy-filled Christians that even in the downturns, even in when things don't go the way we want it, we keep a smile on our face and say, God's coming. God has a plan. Do we trust him? Desmond, that's incredible. As I'm listening to you speak, a thought came to my mind that I want you to expand on a little bit. You're being the leader and not being led. And in a church revitalization situation, it is very easy when the tidal wave is negative to be led rather than being the leader. Could you speak to that? Who called you? Who called you? Was it that local congregation or was it God? I believe that if you are truly a pastor, if you are truly called by God, then you have to live that calling out. Yes, you have to submit to the people that are around you, but at the end of the day, you are held accountable for your service and for those people by God. You have to be willing to push back at times because I've realized that the people I love the most sometimes are used by the devil 
to try to tear me down, to discourage me, to make me want to quit. And sometimes we got to love these unlovable people. Sometimes we got to love them from a distance. Sometimes we got to love them from another church. Sometimes we have to walk with them and allow them to see how they are harming their witness and in turn harming me or the other church member. We have to be holy and we have to be bold in pushing back. Now, I'm not saying be arrogant. I'm not saying be uh, somebody that, that is worldly, but I am saying when you stand on scripture and you stand on the calling, you can do it with love and guidance, but with firmness and holy boldness. And too many pastors have allowed people, the church boss, the church archaeologist that knows where all the bodies are buried, the church pioneer who has been there since 1842, the church golden calf who I've put this nameplate on and you're never going to touch it. We've allowed these people who worship all the wrong things to dictate what God wants to do in the church. And if we're going to be the people that Christ has called us to be, then we have to allow the God-called shepherd, the under-shepherd, to begin to lead the flock. And sometimes, just like in the sheep field, you got to take a staff and whack those sheep a couple of times. And it's not pleasant for them, and it's not pleasant for you. But at the end of the day, if you're obedient to God's word, God will provide. Too many pastors have been hurt. Too many pastors have been run out of churches by non-committed who call themselves Christians, but are not following the biblical mandate of submitting to the authority that God has called to that local church, and that's the pastor. So pastor, don't give up, keep pushing forward, and maybe you got to take out a staff occasionally and whack your sheep upside the head, but do it with holy love. Desmond, help us make this connection. So you've served outside of Appalachia. You really come from outside of Appalachia. And here you are in Summit Church of the Nazarene in Ashland, Kentucky. Talk to us a little bit about what makes serving in Appalachia unique. Family, commitment to that local church, even if they no longer go to that church, it's still their church. They still believe that because their family went to that church two decades ago, three decades ago, six decades ago, they were founding members. That is their church. But it's also a hard place. It's where you battle addiction. It's where you struggle with strife in families and the broken down of the family. And I I guess maybe because I came from that culture that I feel comfortable in it. When I watched J.D. Vance's movie on Netflix, I wept. At the end, in fact, as I said to my wife, she walked in and said, what is wrong with you? And I said, this movie has unlocked the demons in my head that I had hidden because we all carry scars. We all carry the burdens of our families. And in Appalachia, they do that from generation to generation, where 65% of Ashlanders are living in generational poverty. The ones that are living in poverty have generational poverty. You have to wake up one day and say, is this all? And I'm just a person who believes that God has called for this season in the life of this local church to love them where they are, to help them heal from their brokenness, and to move them forward. If we were going to be the church that Christ has called us to be, then we have to be more like Christ. So there were times Jesus taught. There were times Jesus listened. There were times Jesus prayed. There were times that Jesus talked in big crowds, small crowds, individually. He talked to the one that was hurting and lost, but he also was comfortable going into the synagogue 
and speaking in a way that spoke to them. And so you have to, in some ways, be Christ in that individual's life and that family's life, but also in the church life and the community life. At the end of the day, what ties this all together is that God has given me certain experiences in life that are very similar to the experiences in where I'm pastoring. And if I'm willing to allow my own past hurts and experiences of life be a teaching tool, then it can help the people around me. And so, yes, I've done the funerals where I had to bury someone who, who did a drug overdose. Heartbreaking. I've been at the funeral where I had to lay a husband in the ground where the wife said, I think he went to hell because he hasn't been in the church. And I've grieved with people who are struggling because their children are addicted to drugs. And I've grieved with those that have their marriage broke apart because of lust and and other sins. But what's kept me going is that the word of God never dies. It's still alive. And if we can show how Christ is still moving, maybe somebody will see the joy of the Lord inside of me. And they'll say, I want what you have. And they'll be willing to listen to truly how God can radically change their heart, much like did mine in the early 20s. Well, brother, as I listen to you, I am, again, just so thankful for you and love you so much. I know that you're Nazarene and I'm Baptist, so we're supposed to not get along. But I think of you as one of my dearest, closest pastor friends. We don't get to connect all that much. But in conversations like this, I'm just reminded of how important that friendship is. Maybe we could end with this. Desmond, your whole life is about helping people. Hmm. You're a pastor. You lead Ashland's Community Kitchen, which is such a vital part of our community. It enables churches and ministries really to work together to help feed the hungry and help people who are in need. You have written a book. You do a podcast. You write articles each week. To hear you say that you're not a writer is amazing to me what God has done. You constantly post things on social media to encourage people. Your heart beats to help people. And I want to say thank you for that. You have been an encouragement to me without even knowing that. As I look at your Monday morning minute, there's Desmond when I'm trying to wake up from the uh, weekend or on all that goes with that. There's Desmond ready to go and encourages me to go. Where does that come from? It's remembering where I came from where I was lost and where I was broken and where the world said that you're a son of a drug dealer and you're a son of a prostitute and you're never going to make it. It was where I wanted to give up on my young family early on in my marriage. And thankfully, you know, 22 years later, I'm still going at it. You know, it's where I've been in that church and I had to turn on water at the end of the road because we couldn't afford to get the water from the road to the building and it was like, God, is this, 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 this is it? And, and at the end of the day, I'm broken and I'm lost. And I can only be who God has called me to be if I'm willing to say yes to him. And so for your listeners and for the pastor that feels alone and feels like the colleagues don't care about them or maybe even the community around them, God loves you. God cares for you. God has called you. God has equipped you. Be encouraged today that the dream that is inside of you has not been placed there by yourself or by man. It's been placed there by God. If you trust him, if you do your part to move forward, 
God is going to bless that dream and it truly is going to take your ministry to new heights and new places that you'll never dream of. And I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about new spiritual relationships, new babes in Christ, people who are going to be radically transformed and only heaven will know the impact that you had in building the kingdom of God. Desmond, there's a passage that comes to mind as we kind of come to a close. I just preached on James 3, 13 through 18, and it talks about two kinds of leadership in that passage. And, you know, the churches to whom James was writing, there was a lot of quarreling, a lot of partiality, a lot of division. He says there's two types of leaders. There's the leader who's wise and understanding, who knows how to use his tongue. Then there's the opposite leader who is guided by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And the latter of those two, he attributes to an earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. But the former is attributed to the wisdom from above. And I think that's the new birth, the regeneration that comes through the gospel and by the spirit. And that wisdom from above is described as pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And as I hear you talk, I hear that wisdom from above. James finishes that pericope by saying that this kind of wisdom sows in peace by those who make peace and the harvest of which is righteousness. That's the harvest that we're looking for. We're not looking for numbers specifically. I mean, if God gives numbers, that's great. But what we are looking for in Appalachia, the glory of God in clear view, the mountains leveled and the valleys raised up, is a harvest of righteousness. That's what we want to see. That's what Matt and I are motivated by. That's what I hear you motivated by, a harvest of righteousness in Appalachia. Absolutely. You know, buildings will someday crumble. Money will eventually dry up. But at the end of the day, the one thing that we can take with us to heaven is new creations, is individuals who have been sold out, who have invited Christ to their heart as their Lord and living Savior, who have turned from that sin and begin to walk in Him. And that's my passion. That should be our calling as pastors, to make Christ-like disciples, not just talk about it. Amen. Two of my favorite pastors in the whole world, Rex Howe, president of Tri-State Bible College, Dr. Desmond Barrett pastor of Summit Church of the Nazarene. This conversation could go on all day because you've been such an encouragement to me. I love you both dearly. Thank you so much for spending this time together. And I just pray that this Level Pass podcast will be a great, great encouragement to those who listen. We pray that this has been an investment in you, encouragement to you, and help you continue to serve as you seek to reach the lost in Appalachia and minister to those who are hurting. It's exciting to hear how God brought a young man from Florida and planted him at a church in eastern Kentucky. Earlier in the podcast, Dr. Desmond Barrett explained that it wasn't always easy. And in reality, God never guarantees or promises that ministry will be easy. Sometimes it's downright hard. But when we're called in any capacity to serve, the task at hand is to reach others with the gospel. If you're a pastor or maybe you're at a church in the Appalachian region and you're looking for more effective ways to minister to the people right where you are, you can reach out to Rex Howe and Matt Shamlin at Tri-State Bible College by emailing rex.howe at tsbc.edu or matt.shamlin at tsbc.edu. 
And again, if you'd like more information about Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute, visit tsbc.edu. On the next Level Paths podcast... Critical race theory seeks to examine from a legal perspective any hidden power structures within the legal system and social issues of the United States that might put individuals at a disadvantage based on race. The Level Paths podcast is an outreach of Tri-State Bible College and the Appalachian Ministry Institute. 